Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, this show, The Takeout, of course, lives within CBS News, which means it relies on, collaborates with, and learns from some of the best journalists in the business. And they're going to be a part of this week's show. First Margaret Brennan, then David Martin, then Weijia Jang, then Scott McFarlane. Because it is a chaotic news environment, to put it mildly. Maybe among the most chaotic news environments I can remember in the last decade or so, for sure. We're going to start with Margaret Brennan, our chief foreign affairs correspondent, moderator of Face the Nation. Margaret, broadly speaking, we have for the United States and its role in the world, an ongoing war in Europe, a ground war in Ukraine. We have a war in the Middle East, constant tensions in Taiwan and with China, a global economic order that feels pinched and nervous about all three of the things I just mentioned. From your perspective, as someone who is deeply sourced in the world of economics and foreign policy, What's your take on all of this? That's a huge, broad question, but it has to feel, as I'm sure it does to me, it has to feel to you, borderline overwhelming. Overwhelming, absolutely. And also frightening. Um, And I'm sure for people at home, it's been overwhelming to digest all of what is happening because there's also that overlay of massive transformational technological shifts happening in so many different industries and even just how warfare is conducted also shifting with technology. So and how a, it's perceived on social media. Yes. Also 
yes, information warfare, a huge factor right now, too. So everything feels feels like the ground is shifting here. And the former defense secretary, Bob Gates, also former CIA chief, has said a few times now that he thinks this is one of the most dangerous moments that we have been through. Uh, because, of course, we also have that paralysis in the U.S. government to, to act on some of these uh, funding mechanisms for national security interests. Perhaps that changes in the near term, but it is overwhelming and it is interconnected as well here. Uh, One of the things that we are seeing emerge from this moment is that questioning of America's ability to prioritize and the demand for America as a great power to be able to do more than one thing at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, A land war in Europe and helping the Ukrainians to fight Russia, which as uh, Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the Senate, said was a, a way to get one of our our, as he put it, uh, enemy armies defeated by not fighting them directly, doing it through Ukraine. He characterized that as a way to rebuild American stockpiles here at home as well as sort of an economic incentive. Then you have in the Middle East this questioning of something that the Biden administration did think it could put on the back burner mm-hmm. in a big way. Miscalculation perhaps there. Middle East never allows itself to be ignored for very long. Right. And uh, this reassertion on that front that now risks bringing the United States perhaps into more direct conflict with Iran than it has sought before. And then you have China. Here in town this week, we have China's foreign minister visiting and expected to meet with President Biden. And that's not even front page news right now, even though that's the most significant relationship for the United States. So we are truly drinking from a fire hose on the news front. And um, it it really is a, a moment of great peril. Does the situation in the Middle East feel on the cusp of something even worse than it's been for the last three weeks? And the last three weeks have been terrible, terrible, terrible. Bloody, incredibly, incredibly bloody, Um, overwhelming, I know, and deeply emotional for so many people, even thousands of miles away, just consuming the information. Um, And in terms of the ground war that is expected to begin uh, soon. Moving those troops into Gaza is expected, according to former CENTCOM commanders who I've spoken with. General McKenzie was on Face the Nation recently. That's going to be very bloody urban warfare. I know our David Martin will have good granular detail on what that looks like, but that's not a war like Israel has fought in a very long time. And so all that technological and military edge that the United States helps Israel with tremendously as the largest recipient of foreign aid won't mean quite as much. So this will get more difficult politically for Prime Minister Netanyahu, not just because of the criticism of civilian casualties, and that has been quite high in Gaza to date, but also because this is going to be hard for Israeli troops and they will have casualties themselves. And that that changes the dynamic for any leader. So this is going to get more complex on a political scale. And and it's going to be interesting to watch how President Biden navigates it. Another dynamic, and we have to speak broadly here because developments can happen in a matter of hours. There are hostages in Gaza, a substantial number of Israelis, maybe a small number of Americans. There are 10, I believe, is the most recent number of unaccounted for Americans. They might all be hostages. They might also be unaccounted for in another way. This hostage question and the timing of a ground invasion, they are linked, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. The Qataris, and I'd like you to help my audience understand the role that they do play and what is unique about their relationship between Israel, the United States, and Hamas. So Qatar is one of those Gulf states that 
likes to play in gray areas. And that is one of their greatest assets in terms of diplomatic power. They are someone uh, that Emirate is as a country the United States relies on for a number of things. That's where U.S. Central Command is based. You know, our eyes and ears in the Middle East, as the United States of America militarily are based out of there. At the same time, they also host a number of entities the United States considers adversaries. The Taliban has a political office there. Uh, they deal with Iran, and they did in this most recent deal to bring home five Americans from captivity in Iran. It was Qatar that helped deal directly with uh, the Islamic Republic. And then with this, Hamas, they have a political office in Doha, and they have a political arm that is represented there. Qatar is able to speak both to the United States, Israel as well, and Hamas. So they're not sitting down at the table when we talk about hostage negotiations, uh, but Qatar is sitting down with Hamas and able to pressure them. They have a large role in Gaza as well and have for years because they are financially able to support a lot of the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian people, but they also deal with the government there of Hamas. And there has been, uh, you know, a, a, a tacit Israeli approval of a lot of this Absolutely. continued support of the government there, um, de facto government in many ways, since they weren't elected. There haven't been elections in Gaza since 2006. So the people who have been stuck there have been sustained by uh, a lot of humanitarian aid, some of it delivered through the UN, but Qatar is a big part there. So that's just to explain their role mm -hmm. in, this, in this region. And for the United States, Qatar can really come in handy. Uh, Hamas is designated by the United States as a terrorist organization. The U.S. doesn't directly through diplomatic channels talk to them. The Qataris can put pressure on Hamas because of that financial support, because of the uh, weight here and just saying what the United States did strategically was really interesting with the hostages, Major, for the president to publicize, President Biden to publicize what a strong interest he had in bringing this host these hostages home, to go on television, to actually release tape of him speaking in a Zoom call with family members. He was upping the price of those hostages. That is actually counter-typical strategy for hostage diplomacy. But in doing so, allowed for the Qatari government to say, this is a strong priority for the president of the United States. You may want to really consider prioritizing releasing some of those American hostages. Only two have come out to date so far uh, from that um, dual national pool, but we should watch for more in this space. There is a lot of activity. It's very, very complicated for a variety of reasons in trying to negotiate with Hamas. They're not tightly controlled, uh, and they are uh, disparate in terms of different militant groups, from what I understand through diplomatic sources. There has been a conversation in the last week or so that the Hamas attack, barbarous, cruel, beyond almost all imagining and all precedent, even in the fraught history between Hamas and Israel, not only has galvanized Israel, but taken away from Hamas whatever veil or thin veneer of legitimacy it had politically in Gaza, and that Israel now is justified in the world, in the eyes of some who might not have justified it before to go after Hamas and go after it with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And then the corollary to that is that might create an opportunity for a reassessment of the West Bank, of Gaza, the future of Palestinians, possibly reviving a two-state solution. What do you make of that conversation? I know it's aspirational and yes. lots of aspirations have died 
repeated deaths in the Middle East over a two-state solution and the like. But what are your thoughts? Well, it is impossible to separate that question of or the so-called, you know, Palestinian question, the question of what happens with the future of the Palestinian people from the conversation about Hamas, because that is their justification for their own um you know, methods of terrorism they want to uh, eventually, you know, claim they want to destroy the state of Israel in order to establish uh, a Palestinian state. But there is an alternative to them in the form of the Palestinian Authority, which has been ruling in the West Bank that had denounced violence a long time ago, that had moved through a peace process, uh, although ultimately hasn't delivered a tremendous amount for the Palestinian people. And there are those in the intelligence community who were warning that there is a level of discontent for those generations coming up, the youth living in these areas who haven't seen diplomacy deliver for them, who haven't seen the Palestinian Authority or Hamas deliver for them, who are experiencing um, really a very low level of, of um, economic well-being in Gaza and the like, and those want warning that this was dangerous and that some of the extremist groups might exploit that. And Hamas, with this attack, just absolutely stunned uh, White House officials, stunned most uh, national security officials that I've spoken with because they didn't see this coming in the specific form for the terrorist arm of Hamas. And by the way, it wasn't just Hamas. So many officials say it was sort of a, a morass. There was this Hamas-led attack, but then behind it, different militant groups, Islamic Jihad, sometimes other people who may be unaffiliated, just this humanity that poured in without really facing resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it, because of the who brutality... Who took their malevolence uh, with the Jewish state against Jewish civilians. Who just shocked uh, people with the level of violence uh, that was conducted in just a pure act of terrorism in a way that that was just totally miscalculated for uh, by uh, the Israeli military, Israeli intelligence, U.S. analysts missed it. And it it does bring us back to that broader, OK, even if you destroy Hamas as a militant group and their ability to function uh, within a safe haven of Gaza, what do you do next with 2.3 million people who live there? Who governs it? How? How do you, after uh, bombing a civilian population, convince them that violence isn't the answer for them mm -hmm. right. and that right. they have a better alternative? And these are some of the tough conversations that are being had by the Biden administration with the Israeli government right now, saying what comes next. They can't talk about this a lot publicly. But there are implications for the United States here Huge. because to play this out, Let's just think about this. The tanks roll in, whatever else comes in, that can be perceived and in some quarters will be perceived as U.S. military equipment aiding and abetting the yes. Israelis to do this destructive work. And if you're looking at that, you're saying it's not just Israel, it's America, and we want reprisals against both, that creates implications for this government and this country, does it not? Absolutely, it does. And actually, I, I thought it was a very powerful speech over the weekend by King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, a treaty. They have a tre peace treaty with Israel. Mm -hmm. 
have condemned the brutality of Hamas. King Abdullah was one of the people who, for the past two years, has been warning that things were reaching this boiling point, that the Palestinian question couldn't be tabled, as both the Biden and Trump administrations had wanted to do, that it had to be dealt with, that he was warning of violence. He, in fact, tried to uh, make a push towards a, a peace initiative with the short-term prime minister, Yair Lapid, um, who ruled right before Benjamin Netanyahu came back into power. It didn't go anywhere. But there has been this warning that there is a lot of kindling out there. Mm -hmm. And now after this two and a half weeks of bombing and the land invasion that is expected to come in Gaza, you have one of America's best friends saying, this looks a lot like there is a different value being put on uh, Israeli lives versus Arab lives. He, in fact, he said it. I quoted it to the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and said, how do you respond to that? Because perception is perception, not just in the streets, but when you have moderate uh, Arab leaders who are warning the United States that this could backfire the in the region. for their own interests. Mm -hmm. That is not something you can really just push aside. And I, I think that is something the Biden administration is mindful of as well and not quite sure how to navigate. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much for your time. We're going to go to break. When we come back, David Martin. Stay tuned. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to The Takeout and our Reporters Roundtable featuring some of the best reporters at CBS News. And in this case, for this segment, the best National Security Pentagon correspondent that there is. He won't say it, but I will. David Martin, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So... From the Pentagon's perspective, David, as it looks at the continuing situation in the Middle East, what is it most nervous about? What's the worst case scenario for American personnel and Israel, our ally? Worst case scenario for uh, American military personnel is war with Iran. Um, you know, one of Biden's uh, primary objective here is to keep this war focused in 
Gaza. And, you know, there are just so many moving parts right now. Uh, the U.S. is helping uh, rearm Israel with more of the precision-guided weapons that it's using and all these 7,000 uh, strikes against uh, Gaza. And it's got these, uh, uh, this small cell of uh, senior military people there uh, advising the Israelis on the best way to go about invading Gaza and sort of reminding them <clears throat> about uh, Colin Powell's famous uh, pottery barn rules. You break it, you own it. Uh, that applied to us in Iraq, and it will apply to the Israelis in Gaza. Okay, you broke it, what are you going to do with it now? So <clears throat> that's, that's what started this whole thing, mm -hmm. Gaza. But now the threat that this will spread has... Um, led to this uh, really quite large deployment of American forces to aircraft carrier battle groups and um, uh, multiple numbers of uh, air defense systems going into the Persian Gulf uh, countries where U.S. troops are based and where, by the way, they have been under attack. I want you to go into that harassment and attack matrix? What's been going on? Well, <clears throat> there are uh, U.S. troops throughout um, Iraq and Syria, not large numbers, 2,500 in Iraq, 900 in Syria, and they're sprinkled at, at, at bases. And those bases have been attacked by Iranian-backed militias firing rockets and drones at the bases. So far, there, there have only been minor injuries. Everybody's uh, been able to return to duty after, after the attack. But there have been 14 of them, and there may have been 15 of them. And still. one contractor fatality? That was uh, a false alarm. Okay. And Glad he, we clarified that. He, he was running for cover and suffered a, a, a heart attack. Um, so no one has been killed yet. If someone, if someone were killed directly by a strike uh, from a, an Iranian-backed militia, then... I have absolutely no doubt that the U.S. would respond. Right now, no one has been killed, but the president went on record at his press conference with the Australian prime minister, and he said, if Iran or their proxies keep up these attacks, we will respond. So it's a tough decision. Mm -hmm. um, you can't let these militias get free pot shots at, at American troops. But you also don't want to take an act that's going to trigger the very thing you're trying to avoid, which is a wider Middle East war. You mentioned the two carrier groups. They're not on station yet fully, are they? There's one in, one in, in route. route. Okay. Um, and actually has quite a ways to go. Uh, that is uh, the USS Eisenhower, which um, is still in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and then it's got to go all the way across the Mediterranean, which is a bigger sea than most people realize. But its ultimate destination is the waters outside the Persian Gulf. So once it gets to the eastern Mediterranean, which will be in the first couple days of November, still got to go through the Suez Canal, down through the Red Sea and around. So it's, it's quite some ways away. The air defenses, which actually I think are more important uh, because... Uh, Iran basically has 
two weapons that, that worry the U.S. One are these militias, and two are its ballistic missiles. And um, putting in those air defenses is, is meant to neutralize Iran's ballistic missiles. And those air defenses come with the vessels that accompany the aircraft carrier. That, that's one form of the air defenses, but that we're also, also putting in uh, multiple Patriot air defense batteries at these locations in Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere in the Middle East where U.S. troops are based. So this is, this is a major movement of, of military forces. I, trying to remember the last time there was something uh, this big. Talk to my audience, David, about Lebanon and the anxiety there for the U.S. and Israel. That's another worst-case scenario. Um, The terrorist group uh, Hezbollah is uh, based in Lebanon on on Israel's northern border, and and they have the ability to open up a second front against Israel. So it would be fighting Hamas, in the south, in the Gaza Strip, and Hezbollah in the north. And Hezbollah has a much bigger arsenal of rockets and missiles than Hamas. Uh, Hamas, I I think the latest number was something like 7,000 rockets that they've they've fired into Israel. Um, Hezbollah has a a publicly estimated stockpile of 150,000. So they have the ability to basically overwhelm the, uh, the Israeli air defenses. But it would come at a, at a horrendous cost to Hezbollah because uh, the, uh, the Israeli army would go in and their, their aircraft would, would strike. So the, <clears throat> the, the conventional wisdom, and, and you know, after October 6th, you have to kind of say, conventional wisdom will only get you so far. Uh, The conventional wisdom is that Hezbollah doesn't want a war uh, with Israel, and Iran doesn't want a war with the United States. But how many wars have we had that people didn't want? I mean, that's how they start. Things can spin out of control. Yeah. I want to direct our audience's attention ever so briefly to Ukraine and the sense in the Pentagon about where that is what the Ukrainians need, and what the prospects are for something approaching victory? Well, that in, victory depends entirely on the eyes of the beholder. And the, the principal beholder is, is uh, Zelensky. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll, he'll declare victory. And so far, he seems to be holding firm to all Russian troops out of all Ukrainian territory. That's a that's a uh, a major task. You know they've had this this offensive that's been going on all summer, which the U.S. hoped uh, by virtue of the training and the equipment that they gave the Ukrainians would be uh, basically a blitzkrieg, uh, armored brigades piercing these Russian defense lines, and it just didn't work out that way. The first time they, they tried to get through a minefield, they, they just lost a bunch of their armored vehicles. And so it's, it's turned in to three yards in a cloud of dust. They, they, they basically are fighting the same way the Russians fight, which is you level everything in front of you, then you go in and, and occupy it and repeat. Mm-hmm. And so they're making... <clears throat> 
progress. Progress, but it's grinding and slow it's progress. Grinding, a, a grinding slog is is the word you hear over and over again. I mean, you know, it used to be uh, steady progress, but uh, everybody knows that's just a, a hopeless euphemism for what's what's going on there. I mean, these are these are large, large uh, numbers of casualties on both sides, and you know, Russia just has three times the population of, of Ukraine, so they've they've got that advantage. And then there comes the winter, and that makes it all the more difficult to gain ground, and basically you're holding ground. I think it's, it's actually more difficult in the fall, because the, the fall, in the fall, uh, when you get precipitation, you get mud. Once, once the ground freezes um, and you get precipitation, you just get snow, and you can, you can maneuver in that. So, uh, and, and frankly, at the rate they're going, you know, <laughs> this is not maneuver warfare. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This, this is more like trench warfare. Mm-hmm. So um, nobody really expects um, the, the fighting to slow down over the winter. Um, you know, I mean, they've fought horrendous. Uh, the Russians have fought horrendous battles in the dead of winter. Yes, they have. Um, History and, has taught us this. <laughs> With perspective on Israel and Ukraine, David Martin, thanks so very much. Sure. Segment three of The Take, I'll come your way in just a second. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Takeout. The best of CBS is sort of the theme for this week. And when it comes to the White House, that means Ouija Jane. Ouija, it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. President of the United States, Joe Biden, is running for re-election. His poll numbers are bedeviled by dissatisfaction over the economy and inflation. Immigration is described by his opposition party, the Republicans, as a crisis, a full-blown crisis. He's tried to manage the war in Europe, meaning Ukraine. And now the prospects of a grinding war in the Middle East. There's a lot going on there. What is the feel at the White House? Well, some sources think that this is his time to shine. And they have told me that he has been preparing his entire career for this moment because he understands that any foreign policy agenda is not um, just about what's happening in the world, but it's always comes back to national security. And I think that the president stressed that, and he's been saying that um, not only since this war broke out, but certainly with regard to Ukraine, as an explanation and trying to gain public support to continue funding these wars. And so it is very tricky for the president, obviously, 
with, as you laid out, so much at stake. But when it comes to these conflicts, there are many in the White House who believe that, you know, this is his time to show Americans that he is the person to do this job, to handle what's to come, because every decision he makes is not only in response to what needs to happen now, but he's looking ahead to what could come with regard to an expanded conflict with regard to other would-be aggressors. Um, and so I think that's exactly why we saw him go to Israel, in part at least, because, you know, it's no secret that there are a lot of questions about his age, about his energy, about whether he can do the job. And I won't be surprised at all if we see montages of Joe Biden, not in one, but in two active war zones that he went to. Um, he went to Kiev, mm -hmm. and then, of course, he went to Tel Aviv. And so I think that, uh, you know, this is something that he thinks of often, as you framed it, um, because he is campaigning. No matter what, from this point on, Major, everything is has the lens of the campaign somewhere mm -hmm. on those glasses. No doubt. And you know this much better than I do, but if I'm picking it up, it's clearly something that a day-to-day -day White House reporter picks up. This really sort of teeth-grinding frustration that those in the White House have about this narrative that he's too old, he's not vigorous enough, he can't handle it. And in moments like this, I have to feel that the White House is like, uh, excuse me? Mm -hmm. Do you see what's going on? Right. Do you see what's happening and the way the White House is responding? That's got to be, if not... At the top, a subtext, almost every conversation you're having there. Absolutely. And that's why they're also trying to showcase his domestic agenda as well. He is on the road. He is traveling. He is having events. And I feel that they want that to pick up even more to show that he can handle it. And they always say that he can, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time. And so... You know, their strategy is to show and not talk about his age, but to show that he can, in fact, do the job despite um, his age. And of course, I think we've seen, you know, for several weeks now since he officially launched his campaign, um, it's also about the alternative. And, you know, I don't know if that will be enough. Nobody knows if that will be enough because we don't know what the alternative is yet. But they are certainly framing it in a way um, that, you know, you are going to have two older candidates, mm -hmm. likely. And so which one do you want to choose of the two? Let's talk about Israel for a second. The president has known Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, since the early 1980s. They rose in politics together, not the same trajectories, but they climbed the ladder parallel to one another. Not always been, and particularly lately, a warm relationship. There have been clashes, but they are now linked together by this moment. And yet the president has in recent days been more willing to be that kind of friend who says, yes, I support you. Yes, our nation supports you, but be careful. And there are things you should be afraid of out there. Don't be too rageful. Understand the Palestinian civilian component of this. It seems to me an interesting and challenging time for the president to try to land and land not only in a way that the Israeli government hears him, but steers this in a certain way to the best an American president can. This is a very difficult line that the president is trying to walk and navigate. And some would say he has already fumbled because he has to continue his 
rock-solid, unwavering support of Israel, which he uh, declared from day one. He also has to acknowledge um, a Muslim American community that is also uh, going through a lot of pain. And so I think in recent days especially, including during his remarks with the Prime Minister of Australia, he reiterated Israel's responsibility and um, obligation to respond to what happened. But he also is trying to hit home that, you know, not all Palestinians are linked to Hamas and that he feels for the Muslim American community as well. He can condemns anti-Semitism. He condemns Islamophobia at the same time. But I think he hasn't drawn any lines. And that's where there is some criticism, because we've seen him lean into the role of consoler in chief and say, look, I understand there's pain in both communities, the Jewish American community, the Muslim American community. I feel you. I see you. He's literally said those words. But that is not enough because people want to know, OK, so what are you going to do about it? And he can't draw those lines. Um he continues to support Israel as long as they abide by the rules of war. What happens if they cross it? Um, he has said there will be no U.S. troops involved on the ground. When will that change? He has warned Iran and other potential aggressors, don't get involved, but or what? He hasn't drawn those lines. And so I think that's where the difficulty comes in, because he can't, um, you know, have these uh, markers when every day, every moment, the situation is changing. But he's certainly trying to be mindful of everyone who has a stake in this and how the U.S. is hurting right now. And so many people are observing this and wanting to know what comes next. Right. And one way to answer that question of what comes next is to commit the administration in ways that it hasn't been, because it hasn't needed to be, to a dynamic hour by hour, day by day, diplomatic process to try to find a two-state solution, mm -hmm. which other presidents have tried. I covered Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. the most recently aggressive person on this front as president of the United States. It's been a long time since been, there's been that active every day. What are we doing about this? How is it going? Are we the interlocutor? Are we the reliable mediator? Is the administration prepared to do that on the other side of whatever the military conflict between Israel and Hamas is? Well, the president has said as much, and he once again um, reiterated the need for a two-state solution. Um, and he does that at every chance he gets. But the, the question is how? Right. What is that going to look like? And how much does the U.S. become involved in that? How, how much can you? Because as you mentioned, uh, many have tried and failed. Um, but that certainly is his goal, which he laid out pretty much from day one, Major. I was going back and reading his foreign policy speeches. And at the center of it all is that America is back and diplomacy is back when it comes to foreign policy. And that's why he has spent so much time and effort trying to um, regain the trust of allies, trying to show that we are not going to be America alone, that we actually need help because we can't do this alone. But when you look at the partners, especially in the region, you know, you have to wonder how strong those relationships are. I mean, case in point, that trip to Israel was supposed to have another part to it. He was supposed to be meeting with Arab leaders in Jordan, which ultimately got canceled. Um, and so, again, I think it's too early 
Uh, but of course, that is a goal marker. And that's something that he will continue to strive for. But again, where's the playbook here? No playbook at all. And very quickly, Weege, on Ukraine, the administration's approach and its goals. Well, money funding. And that's why you see this huge, exactly. That's why you see um, a huge package totaling of about $100 billion that the president wants to push through that is attached to funding for Israel, as well as funding for border security and Indo-Pacific nations like Taiwan. Because again, going back to how the president views his foreign policy, um, it is all about national security here at home. And that's how he's trying to sell it. But you know, it's going to be really difficult, especially with um, the new Speaker of the House who most recently voted against more Ukraine funding. And so, you know, how they get it done, if they get it done, is still a big question mark. But at least they can have that conversation right. now with a Speaker. Because at least there's a Speaker. And that leads us to segment four of the takeout when we come back. Weijia Jang, thanks so very much. Thank you. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Takeout and our Reporters Roundtable. Scott McFarland, congressional correspondent extraordinaire, joins us. As you all know, ladies and gentlemen, for three chaotic and dysfunctional weeks, the House of Representatives was closed, canceled, actually self-canceled, if you will, because the majority party, which happens to be the Republicans, ousted the speaker and could not find a way for the better part of 22 days to a new speaker. Well, one's finally been found. And if you don't know the name and don't recognize it, it's not your fault. Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, has only been in Congress since 2017. Never been a subcommittee chairman or committee chairman. He's on the outer edges of elected House Republican leadership. Far from a household name, even in Washington, let alone anywhere outside of his home district, which happens to be the fourth in Louisiana. Scott, who is this guy? This is so bonkers. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what just happened. His colleagues, in some cases in Congress, don't know who Mike Johnson is. Mike Johnson was so unprepared to become the speaker, he didn't even have his wife in town. She couldn't get here in time for his swearing in. So let's start with that. Mike Johnson is a stranger to even some of his colleagues. He is not a member of leadership, not a committee chairman. Not a high profile, not a big fundraiser, not a prominent force in the party, yet he is now second in line to the presidency. And I got to take I got to say it out loud to try to unpack the chaos of the last couple of weeks. Mike Johnson is an evangelical Christian from the Shreveport area, came around here in 2016, spent in Congress for 
four terms now. He cut a relatively low profile, even in the majority. He was a, the vice chair of the conference, which is like the the lowest level of yeah. leadership, kind of like the the, uh, the kind of guy gets a cubicle, not an office, mm-hmm. when you're in leadership. But everything just seemed to go his way in a 24-hour period. This confluence of events that he couldn't have created if he tried. He is conservative enough to have all of those factions in the Republican conference say he's okay with us. And he's invisible and low profile enough that the moderates are like, sure, that works. My constituents don't know who he is. They're not going to be concerned. And he got them all. He hadn't been around long enough to accumulate a record that would be problematic. He hadn't offended anyone. There were no resentments against him for one personal or political or procedural reason. A friend to all, enemy to none, as Elise Stefanik said. Well, that that's over. You're speaker now. You're going to offend someone. You're going to be someone's friend or someone's foe basically every hour of every day. And yet, he has to rely, if I understand it, Scott, on the very people over whom he catapulted. Steve Scalise remains majority leader. Tom Emmer, the last person who thought they might be speaker before Mike mm-hmm. Johnson, remains majority whip. This new speaker, inexperienced, will have to turn to them and say, uh, gentlemen, how do we run the building? And they will say, well, what? There's three enormous, unprecedented hurdles he faces. That's one of them. That not only does he have to work with a leadership team and a bunch of Republicans who he somehow surmounted, but you know this as well as anybody. The worst type of bad blood is the type of bad blood that forms during leadership races. Mm-hmm. When there are people who think they missed their chance at something because somebody did them dirty or somebody edged them out. So he's got to overcome that. There's your first big hurdle. Second big hurdle is the same one any speaker would face at this moment. He's going to have to do deal with Democrats mm-hmm. to keep the government open, to do big things. You need Democrats because, oh, by the way, the Senate is still controlled by Democrats. So he's got to do that, even though his predecessor was just ousted for doing that and ticking people off. That's hurdle number two. Hurdle number three is he's got one of the biggest jobs in Washington. He has not just a political job, but an administrative job that is so big it's hard to categorize. You are running half of the American legislature, and he has zero experience, no infrastructure, doesn't have the staff for it, has no fundraising capacity, has no experience doing that, and he doesn't know where all the doors lead to. What's behind this door? What room is this? Who works here? What are you? What's the architect of the Capitol? What's the Capitol Police? Who's the sergeant at arms? They're all now answering to him. Does Kevin McCarthy play a role in all of this as the most recently ousted speaker, but still a member of the House Republican Conference in good standing? Does he become an ally or an assistant to Mike Johnson? He has that capacity and he has that opportunity because... Does Kevin, he have that predilection? He's going to want to be relevant. I mean, you don't go from being speaker to being the congressman from Bakersfield, California, who goes to the subcommittee meetings at midnight on the, you know, the administration of the Capitol complex. He's going to want to be relevant. His endorsement really was singularly important for Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson looked like things were sailing his way uh, midweek this week. But when Kevin McCarthy gave him the endorsement publicly, it had all those people who were unsure what to do line up. Because Kevin McCarthy maintained, even after his removal, a base of support that was devoted among some House Republicans. Some said they would vote for nobody ever Mm -hmm. besides Kevin McCarthy. He brought them along. So Mike Johnson does have something to repay. Walk my audience, Scott, through the calendar as it presents itself 
to this newly minted speaker. Okay, so he's got, what, 20 days, 25 days to avoid a government shutdown. And Congress just squandered three of the weeks needed to avert the government shutdown with this hot mess. Um, Speaking to a number of the Republicans, uh, conservative Republicans in the Freedom Caucus who hate the continuing resolutions Congress passes, those things that just kick the can down the curb and keep government open a few more weeks and do things on a temporary basis, they're going to give him some latitude because they recognize they boxed him in by squandering three weeks on this. So I think he's going to have better hand of cards than Kevin McCarthy had. He's going to have some conservatives who say, do what you got to do. We'll keep looking for the bigger goals down the road. Kevin McCarthy wasn't afforded that opportunity when he cut a deal with Democrats to keep the government open. That's the first thing on the calendar with an asterisk. There may need to be aid to Israel and Ukraine before November 17th. The Israel money, I think he can show up for work, put on a tie, and Israel money is going to go right through his house of representatives without trouble. He won't need to twist any arms or crack any heads. That Ukraine money is a problem, though. Whew. That is a wedge issue. That is the wedge issue right now inside the House Republican Conference. There are dozens of his own Republicans who don't support funding Ukraine. But there is a bipartisan majority for it. He just has to find a way to bring it to the floor and make that happen without antagonizing those Republican critics. And imagine that's the first thing he has to do. Mm -hmm. Imagine if that's the first big thing he's got to tackle. Imagine if the Ukraine money needs to happen in a matter of weeks. He hasn't passed a big spending bill. He hasn't gotten everything else done that's divisive. He may have to do that early on. It's a problem. And I've got to tell you, right, the Republicans in the Senate, Lindsey Graham, say not only does the Ukraine money have to happen, don't even separate it from the Israel money. Put it all together. You need to do it all at once. It's urgent. It needs to happen for the world's good, not just America's good. That's Mike Johnson's first real big splintering problem. And before we go, very quickly, he still has the one person motion to vacate sword metaphorically and politically above his head. Unless he can get the House to approve a rules change, which would require some composition of votes (laughs) that isn't there right now. So, yeah, he's hanging by the same thread Kevin McCarthy was hanging by, but he gets something different. He gets a honeymoon period because everybody recognizes he was thrust into this job by his own choice, but with short notice. Marriage of convenience. It sometimes happens in politics, legislative and otherwise. Scott McFarland, thanks so very much. That does it, folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.